We got a little bass, got a little bass set up here. I used to do that when I was a kid. I used to set up homework bass. Be on the on my uh, dining room table. Just everything, just all around me. Just yeah, my headquarters. There you go, my control center, my control center. Yes. All right. Got two books up here, cell phone and computer. Um, so full disclosure, I was not planning to preach this this week. But last week, Dawn just messed me up. <laughs> just messed up the whole flow. <laughs> and if you were not here last week, or you did not listen like Larry did, what's up, man of God? Bless you. Um, by the way, Larry loved your message. Cried all the way through it, he said, something like that. If you were not here and you did not hear it online, it's on the website. Go listen to it. If you were here and you did listen online, go listen again. You'll get something the second time through. Amen? Amen? Okay. Some of you are awake. All right. So I want to speak on worship, not just because I'm a worship leader, but because I love to worship God. And it was the, um, the presence of God that really just ushered me into the life of leading worship. I didn't fall in love with the sound of my voice, the sound of my instrument, the sound of anything, but I fell in love with the presence of God at the age of 15. At the age of 15. I was not planning to tell the story, but I'll tell this story. Um, at 15, I was singing a song with my gospel choir, my church in Connecticut, CT, it's the mother state. I'm from Connecticut, and I was singing in the choir there, and we, my friend and I, turned a song into a duet. And that duet really um, was enjoyed by the adults in my church, some of the adults of the choir. And um, we had a youth choir and an adult choir, and then the adult choir, some of them kind of like mentored us kind of thing and were around with us. And so some of them enjoyed it. And so one day after choir rehearsal, my mom said to me, Khalid, sing that song. So she's in the driver's seat, and I'm in the passenger seat. And she said, sing that song. And so I start singing it. And I get through about a line or two or three, and the presence of God floods the car. It felt like he came through the windshield and it just overwhelmed me to the point that I could no longer sing. I was bracing myself between the window and the armrest 15. First time I experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so my mom reaches over as I'm weeping, trying to get through the song, can't get through the song. She grabs my hand and she says, son, that's the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what I would have thought had she not had the wisdom to do that. But she did. I saw her cry. And so that kind of released me to cry in worship. One of the things that's important about worship is seeing an example. Seeing an example. 
One example for me was my mom. One example in this church is this man right here, John. Stand up, John. Stand up, John. He's a new man. He's here for the second time, I think. When I see you worship, you are one of the people that when I see you worship, one of the people, one of. When I see you worship, I'm encouraged as a worship leader. And God is blessed. And so I just want to publicly bless you and thank you for your worship to the Lord God Almighty. Amen. So when, the, when, when, when I sang that song, he flooded the car. And I couldn't get through the song. He flooded the car. My mom says, that's the Holy Spirit. He marked me in that moment for nothing less than his presence. Overwhelmed me and marked me at the same time. And I knew at that moment that he, his presence was my addiction. His presence was what I wanted, what I needed, what I have to have all the time. And so that's what made me a worshiper, a worship leader eventually. Not because I'm talented, not because I've gone to school, not because I have an anointing or whatever it is you want to call it. It's because I love the presence of God. Amen. Um, so I just want to talk about worship and the power of it. Amen. So, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1 through 30. Um, I don't want to read the whole thing. Will you, pro will you guys promise to read the whole thing when you get home sometime this week? Yes? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Say, I promise to read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1 through 30. All right, you've now just been inducted to the Khalid Worship School. You must do it because there will be a report next week that is due. All right. Um, so this is amazing scripture. Jehoshaphat puts, I'm going to summarize it, Jehoshaphat puts a choir in front of his army. Why? Because there's three armies coming against Judah. How many have read this story before? You, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Judah is threatened. It feels like it's going in and out. Is it going in and out? No? Okay. Judah is threatened by three armies. Mount Seir, the Amorites, and the whoever else it is. Three armies are coming against Judah. And so the, the, the people are freaked out. And so Jehoshaphat is, he honors the Lord. He loves the Lord. He's, he's, he's trusting in the Lord. Some ways he doesn't, but most ways he does. He's like 90%, like most of us. Um, and he puts an army behind a choir, a choir in front of an army. And he says, trust in the Lord. Believe the Lord and you will prosper. Believe his prophets and you'll have good success. The prophet prophesied that the battle is the Lord's, not ours. That's what he said to Israel. So he puts this choir in front of the army. The choir begins to worship, to bless the Lord, to worship him and praise him in the, it says, the beauty of holiness. And so when they start to worship, the army of three armies that are coming against Judah start to turn on each other. 
It says the Lord set ambushes against them. I don't know what that means, what an ambush is in the spirit. But the Lord sets ambushes against those three armies. Army number one and army number three fought army number two. And then army number three and one killed army number two, and then they turned on each other. They completely annihilated each other. The enemies of God completely annihilated each other, so much so that everyone was dead when Israel got to the valley. Israel gets to the valley, and there's nothing but dead bodies and spoil. And I just want to prophesy to you today, whatever is coming against you, if you will just worship, if you will begin to worship in the spirit and truth and behold the beauty of holiness, you will begin to see the ambushes of the Lord set against everything that is coming against you. If you will begin to worship in spirit and in truth, you will see transformation in your life. You will see situations manifest in ways that you couldn't believe. They got to the valley, and all they had to do was take the spoil, the gold, the jewels that were on their arms, that were on their bodies, because everyone, everything that the enemy meant for destruction, God turned around for good for Israel and blessed them because they worshiped. It was when they worshipped. Uh, um, uh, Moses, he had a successor, Joshua. Joshua said, "Lord, who do I? Who do we send? Who do we send first when this in this battle?" And what did he say? What was God's response? What? Send Judah first. It's appropriate that the worshiper answered. He said, send Judah first. Judah means praise. And so when Joshua was inquiring of the Lord, who do we send into this battle first? The Lord responds back, Judah, because I've already given him the victory. It's already done. Send Judah first. I've already given him the victory. There is a power in praise. There is a power in worship that we don't always get to experience theologically. We don't always get to understand mentally, but it's there. It's still there nonetheless. And if we would just tap into the power that is there, we would live victorious lives. We would live overcoming lives. We would live lives that would shine and cause others to say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, um, there was this example. You, you guys know that me and Casey and Don go way back like vertebrae. Yeah, I got that. Way back like vertebrae. Okay. We go way back, like vertebrae, like 20 years back to Fuller. While I was at Fuller, um, I had a dream. Can I tell you the dream? Amen. Thank you. 
because I was going to tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> so I have this dream where um, I'm on this grassy knoll. It's, it's shaped like a, kind of like a circle, but more like a, uh, an egg. Yeah, oval shape. There you go. Thank you. Geometry fan. Um, so, amen. It was an oval-shaped grassy knoll. So I look up. It's nighttime. I look up in the dream, and it's completely black. There's clouds. There's darkness above me. And then I'll, I have a microphone like I do now, and there was a cord on it. And then all of a sudden, light began to break through one particular section in the sky. I looked up and I saw it and I screamed in the microphone, hallelujah. I threw the microphone down and I ran directly to my left, nine o'clock. And then I ran around the circle, around the oval, up to 12 o'clock. And when I got there, floating down through the clouds was a solid gold throne. And Jesus was on the throne. And he's floating down like a feather. And then when he hits the ground, it's like this big, huge thud. Boom. And there were two angels in front of him, worshiping him. And there was, I was about 30, 30 feet away or something like that. I saw two angels, one or two angels worshiping him. And there was a disciple, a human, who was there in front of him. And the disciple was asking Jesus, hey, can you introduce me to James? Can you make that introduction? And as I looked at the Lord's face and heard his voice when he responded to the disciple, in his eyes, he said, yes, yes, I can introduce you to James. In his eyes were this immense sadness. In his voice, was this immense, deep sadness in his posture, in his face. It was in his eyes, his face, and his voice. Sadness. Because the disciple had come to him not wanting him, not worshiping him, not desiring him. And oftentimes, I realize that Fuller Seminary and sometimes in the church, we come to Jesus with ulterior motives. And we come to the Bible to understand God and theology as if he's a subject matter. He is a king. He is a person. He is a ruler. He is the creator of the entire universe. He has so much power, he spoke it into existence. This is our God. This is the lover of our soul, but this is our God. He is not a subject matter to go study. He is a person to worship. He is a person to encounter. And so what I realized from that dream was that God was calling me and Fuller at that point to back to worship. Not to studying theology only. Not to coming to Jesus as a way to understand something deeper about 
the universe or what he has done, but to be like the angels that were worshiping him. It says around his throne, there's angels and creatures and elders and day and night, night and day, they cry out, holy. They're worshiping day and night, night and day, like we sang in that song. And so you know what I did because of that dream? I called Fuller to worship. I had a 12-hour worship meeting at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. That's right. I invited all the professors. I created uh, invitations that looked like wedding invitations, and I put it in their boxes, put signs up, and it was a Friday night, November 18th, 2005, I think it was, 2005, November 18th, Friday night, 2004, 2005. One professor came. Many, many, many students came. Student and, and, and youth from other places came. I had 12 different worship teams set up from one from seven to eight, one from eight to nine, one from nine to ten, all throughout the night. And we worshiped God in the beauty of holiness. One testimony from that night was that uh, a man saw God the Father on the throne in a way that he had never seen him before. There was revelation, spirit of wisdom, revelation, encountering him. And so after that night, it was a beautiful time. We went from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. After that night, I went on with my life, had to, you know, do some makeup work and all kinds of stuff because I got behind in my studies because it took so much work to plan. So six months later, I see this young woman who was at that night, and she said, I was there, and the next day, I walked onto Fuller's campus. And there's this part in Fuller's campus, you remember the elbow, Dawn? So there's this, there's this part called the elbow. It's, um, it's kind of in the center, and there's this, it's a road like this, and it turns to the right, and there's these uh, big metal posts that block cars from proceeding down into the, the rest of the campus. So she said she walked over, and she crossed over that threshold, and she said as soon as she did that, the Lord gave her like some sort of vision or some sort of experience, and she saw that there was an attack coming to Fuller Seminary. But because you worshiped last night, I stopped it. She told me this six months later because I hadn't seen her for that, that amount of time. I just, we just missed each other, you know. And so I was deeply encouraged because I, I felt so much, um, there, there was so much taken away of, in terms of time and energy from my life from doing that night. It took so much out of me, but it also put so much into me. It was, it was, it was an incredible night. And she said, there was an attack coming. The next day I walked on the Fuller's campus and, I, and the Lord showed me, the Father showed me, there was an attack coming to Fuller. I don't know what it was, but the Lord said he stopped it because we worshiped. That blew me away. Because I wasn't, 
I wasn't a fan of this, that particular passage in Second Chronicles, like I am now. I didn't know it. I called the night, bow down. And in this passage, Jehoshaphat, if you read, I think it's the NRSV. I think, I think that's the, the version. One version says, Jehoshaphat bowed down. Uh, another version says he, he bowed low or something like that. But he bows down to worship God. And I named the night, not because of the scripture, but I just happened to name it, bow down. I want to tell you, there is a power, there is a warfare that God executes in your worship. Worship is not only warfare, but it is warfare. I hesitate to say it's warfare because people, sometimes they think, oh, that means it's got to be loud, or that means it's got to be fast, or that means it's got to be, I got to yell and scream and all, and you don't. All you have to do is kiss the sun. It was said in our prayer time earlier, Dawn mentioned it up here, the word worship means to kiss, to kiss the presence of God. And so when we worship him, we exalt him, we kiss his presence. In Psalm 2, it says to rejoice. There's three different modes of worship. It says rejoice, it says tremble, and it says kiss the sun lest he be angry. We must rejoice, tremble, and kiss the sun. We must get into this place where worship becomes so important to us that we will, like Dawn said, get our butts in the seat. That was my favorite part of last week. Get your butts in the seat. Only problem is you didn't follow up that statement with a sucker. You should have, get your butts in the seat, suckers. Like, like Mr. T should have said, spirit of Mr. T. There is a power in our worship. How many of you seen that, um, that movie, Horton, Horton Hears a Who? So there's this scene where he's the, the, the professor. He's running around trying to get everybody to sing or, or to shout. We are here. 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 And it's, it's reaching up to the, to the sky, and it's about to break through. But there's one little kid not, not shouting, not chanting. And when that one little kid starts to yap, there is a breakthrough in the sky. It literally breaks through the sky, and the 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 people who are coming, the 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 little um, what are monkeys who are coming to destroy the who's, they hear it, and their hearts change. Like oh, they they really are there. They really are alive. The same is true with our worship. That's what Dawn was saying. We it's it's important that we're all here, present to exalt the King. Because there's something lacking if we're not. You add a power to it, the unity of the brethren, there's a power in that in our worship. Go watch that scene. It, it, it may change your life now that you have it in this perspective. <laughs> Jehoshaphat puts the army behind the choir and they tear them up. Not because they fight but because they sing. 
Fuller was saved from impending doom and danger. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just a verbal attack. Maybe it was an article. Maybe it was something bigger. Maybe it was financial. Maybe they were going to lose their buildings or whatever it was. But whatever it was, it was stopped because we worshiped. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Lord tells us, the, the writer of Hebrews, he quotes uh, Psalm 22, and he says, I will worship you, I will sing unto you, God our Father, in the midst of the brethren. So in other words, what Jesus is telling us here is that he uses us as instruments of praise. I've always thought of myself as a worship leader. I've thought of myself as an instrument, not a man who plays an instrument, but myself as an instrument of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit guides and directs me as I'm worshiping. And like Stan will say, you know, sometimes we'll veer off this way or veer off that way. And you just gotta, you just gotta flow. You just gotta be open to it and know that it's potentially going to happen. Because I'm an instrument. I'm not controlling the instrument. My desire is to be an instrument. This is why the enemy is so mad at us. This is, this is probably the reason. Because before he was disembodied, he was an instrument. He had pipes. The Bible says his body itself had pipes. And when he flew through the air, he made worship. But he wasn't satisfied with the, the, the role of being the maker of worship. He wanted to be the object of worship. And so he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The five I wills. He said, I will ascend to the height. I'm going to take over God's throne, essentially. He was created to worship, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to be the object of worship. And now we have taken his place. And so he has come down with rage and anger in the, against the body of Christ because we are now the instruments of praise. With your body, you can very well, in anointed ways, worship the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And this is a weighty responsibility. It is not something to be taken Lightly. Worship is something that moves heaven. Prayer is just the same thing as, as worship. It's just, I think about it as like a quarter. One side is heads, one side is tails. One side is prayer, one side is worship. I think about it as this, this is two different sides of the same coin. One has melody, one doesn't. That's it. One has rhythm. Well, prayer could have rhythm too. One has rhythm and melody and harmony, and one just doesn't. It's the same, it's the same vein. It's the same spirit behind it. And this is a great responsibility, not something to be taken lightly. Now, I want to say this also. I hope that you don't get mad, but I'm going to say it. This was in your Bible when you came into the church today. There are seven words in the Old Testament that are defined 
that define the word praise. Seven words in the Old Testament that are translated into the word praise. And it doesn't really do us a great service because they're all different and they all are translated as praise. But they're all different things. There's halal, there's um, shabak, there's um, zawar. Seven different words. None of them, they're all action words. They all talk about the volume with which you sing and worship, the physical position of your body, uh, what you're doing on the ground. They're all physical action words. None of them are this. Reading the words on the screen with your hands crossed, holding your other hand. If you are to be biblically in worship and do the actions of worship, it takes something of yourself. You have to actually do something. There is no standing Stoic like that. Worship is your arms up. Worship is your voice being utilized by the Holy Spirit. Worship is your whole body bowed down. Worship is waving. Worship is dancing. Worship is a physical activity that God has called us to if you are a believer. There is a responsibility in that. And we have to understand who we're worshiping. The ancient of days, the I am that I am, the one with fire in his eyes, the one with the sash, the one who's wearing a, a white robe and a crown on his head, the one who's sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you, the one who on the cross had nails in his hands. And his body was broken and pierced. And whose blood flowed so that you could be not only saved, but delivered and healed. That's the one we're worshiping. That's the one who got up out of the grave and who is now about to break open heaven and cause not only revival, but again, come and return and rule on Mount Zion. That king is the king we're worshiping. That mentality is the mentality that we need to have when we come here, when we stand in his presence, when we're driving down the street, when we wake up in, the, in, the, in our beds in the morning, when we're taking a shower, everything, in every moment, we have the opportunity to live lives of worship. It's not only here in the song time, but it's throughout the entire time of our lives. We honor this king that we serve we, because we bear his name. Yes. 
We bear his name. We are married to this king who's coming back. We are his bride. We are his worshiping warrior. That's why I'm wearing camo today. Bride. We are married to him. That's why we kiss him. Our worship is warfare, but it's not only that. It's a responsibility. It's an honor and a privilege to do it, to be in the presence and to experience his presence. So there's seven words, and they all mean seven different things, and they're all action words. There's also seven different times in the Old Testament when revival hit Israel. You want to know what preceded all those seven times? A revival of worship. King David sees into heaven. He experiences what's going on there. And he says, here on earth as it is in heaven, in his heart, before Jesus said it. He wants the worship that is happening in heaven to be here on earth. And so what does he do? He sets 288 singers, gives them all jobs, says, hey, leave Starbucks, come over here and worship. He gets 4,000 musicians. He says, hey, quit your job at Target. Come on over here and worship. And so they do it. He instates the tabernacle of David. It's an amazing thing. And then it wanes. But then there's six other times that it gets reinstated. Every single time, revival hits, renewal hits, and it's in response to the worship. We have to understand that this is not a game that we're playing. This is not, this is not, we, we, the, the weightiness of who he is should be in the weightiness of our worship. It needs to be reciprocal. We need to understand who he is, honor who he is in our worship, in our sobriety, about doing the thing that he calls us to do. In Amos 9-11, he said, I'm going to reinstate this thing called the tabernacle of David. James then says, God's going to reinstate this thing called the tabernacle of David. He says it in Acts chapter 15, I think it is. I'm going to do it again. And the emphasis is not on the activity of it, per se, it's on the I will do it. It's God who's saying, I will reinstate this. It's my will to do this again. It's my will that this happen. And watch what it says, that all the nations, all the Gentiles who are called by my name would seek me. If you want to see revival happen, if you want to see the globe on fire for Jesus, get serious about worship. 
You want to see your city changed? You want to see your family changed? You want to see your life changed? Get serious about worship. And this is not, like Don said last week, a message to condemn what we have done or haven't done. This is an invitation to the bride from the bridegroom. It's because he loves us that he's calling us deeper into the wilderness of worship, calling us deeper, showing us what it really means, giving us a sobriety about who we are in relationship to him and what we do in relationship to the kingdom. There's seven times, seven words, and the alabaster box that Mary broke over him was a sacrifice. It was a year's worth of salary, some say. Some scholars say it was a year's worth of salary that she wasted on him in one moment, one instant. This was a sacrifice. David said, I would not give the Lord anything that cost me nothing. I'm not going to give him anything if it doesn't cost me something. Worship costs something of yourself, physically. There is a response to who he is. That sacrifice of praise is in spite of your day, your hour, your week, your month. Maybe it's been a bad year. It doesn't change who he is. His worthiness is throughout eternity. Nothing is changed about him because of your situation. It's not your circumstance. It's your Savior. It's about your Savior. It's about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so on the altar must be a sacrifice. When the fire falls, when, I, when, when Elijah calls down the fire, it licks up the sacrifice, the wood, and the seven bowls of water that he, he poured on it. But the fire falls, and it's coming towards a sacrifice. It's not coming towards nothing. There is a sacrifice on the altar that burns. And so when we sing that song, let the fire on the altar never go out, fire needs fuel. Fire needs fuel. And if we want revival, I love that Dawn had us do uh, vows at the end of her sermon last week. If we want revival as the bride of Christ, we need to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of worship, a sacrifice so that he has something that he can work with, that he can burn, that he can light and ignite on fire. Do we want that to be our lives? Do we want the world to be changed because we have encountered him? And we must take seriously this thing called worship. There is, 
of war coming. And that war is between the demonic house of prayer that is trying to be raised up and what the Lord is trying to do, his tabernacle of David, that he will raise up. And we have to be prepared for it. We have to prepare our kids for it the way that my mom prepared me. I'm preparing my kids. This is about the next generation. When the king comes back, he's not coming back for a weak bride. He's coming back for a bride who is spotless, wrinkle-free, washed in his blood, a warrior bride who is singing to him, praying to him, and executing the judgments on the Antichrist. I know I'm getting into eschatology right now, but it's, it's a part of worship. It is so critical that we understand in the end times, worship and prayer are going to execute judgment. Not on the body of Christ, but on the Antichrist. There's 413 verses in Revelation. Twelve of them are about persecution. It's like 3%. Very little. Most of it is about what the praying and worshiping church is going to do to the Antichrist through worship and prayer. We must get good at it. We must take it seriously. I'm calling you as a general to the next level of worship. Stand up in your spirit. Know who you are worshiping. And do it in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen.